Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. And let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of this day, for this evening together in community and fellowship, and most of all, for the power and the beauty of your word. We pray, Lord, as we dive into your words and your teachings tonight, that you would speak to us, that you would convict our hearts. You would challenge us to know you as you are authentically in yourself, not our own preconceived notion or image of who you might be, but reveal to us your true nature, your true self, your true heart, and conform each one of us into deeper relationship with you and deeper imitation of who you are. Remove from us any distraction, any stress, anxiety, worry, doubt, anything that might be plaguing our minds and our hearts or distracting us from this time, we pray that you would cast those things out by the power of your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that you would send your Holy Spirit to guide us and empower us during this time of study and fellowship. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome. My name is Matt. If I haven't met you before, so great to see you and have you here. We are in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. And we are going to read this twice through, as we always do. We're going to be reading the parable of the unforgiving servant. This is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, which is the 24th Sunday in Ordinary Time. So we are picking up right where we left off last week. We had the uh, teaching about church order and fraternal correction, what to do if a brother or sister uh, within the community sins, how to correct that behavior appropriately and to bring them to the authority of the church when necessary. And now we pick up right after that. So we have this parable of the unforgiving servant. So I want to remind you of everything that's happened in chapter 18, because this is what we call the church order discourse. It's Jesus's fourth of five teaching discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. And we go from a teaching about uh, that children are how we're meant to receive the kingdom of God like a child, that children are our greatest examples of how to enter into the kingdom and how to be in relationship with God because of their receptivity and their trust. Jesus talks about uh, it's greater, no greater sin or scandal than leading one of these little ones astray. It would be greater, it'd be, it would be better if a millstone would be around your neck and you'd be cast into the sea. And then we have the parable of the lost sheep that the shepherd will go off in search of the one uh, and leave the 99 to show us that no one is beyond saving, that God will be uh, willing to go out of his way to seek any one of us out. And then we had our passage last week about how to correct one another. So to be reminded that God doesn't give up on any one of us, but when we're in the community, there are things that we need to adhere to. There's a certain way of life in following Jesus. And if we go astray from that, we can cause scandal, and so we need to be able to empower one another, keep each other accountable, and be able to challenge one another uh, when we fall short. And so this whole discourse ends with this parable, um, the parable of the unforgiving servant. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of context as to where we've been. We're going to read this twice through, as we always do. First time through, just get a picture for what's being said. So Jesus in this passage, he's teaching somewhere in the Sea of Galilee region, probably still in Capernaum, uh, a port city, teaching to his disciples specifically. And this is how he ends this discourse. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter approached, approaching, asked Jesus, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how often must I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus answered, I say to you, not seven times, but 77 times. That is why the kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who decided to settle accounts with his servants. When he began the accounting, a debtor was brought before him who owed him a huge amount. Since he had no way of paying it back, his master ordered him to be sold along with his wife, 
his children, and all his property in payment of the debt. At that, the servant fell down, did him homage, and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back in full. Moved with compassion, the master of that servant let him go and forgave him the loan. When that servant had left, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a much smaller amount. He seized him and started to choke him, demanding, Pay back what you owe. Falling to his knees, his fellow servant begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he had him put in prison until he paid back the debt. Now when his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were deeply disturbed and went to their master and reported the whole affair. His master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you your entire debt because you begged me to. Should you not have had pity on your fellow servant as I had pity on you? Then in anger, his master handed him over to the torturers until he should pay back the whole debt. So will my heavenly father do to you, unless each of you forgives his brother from his heart. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we're going to read this now a second time, second time through. This time, maybe you have a picture of this in your mind. You've heard this story before, possibly. Now I invite you to listen specifically to the words as they are read and see if there's any particular word or phrase that stands out to you. Maybe it resonates with something going on in your own life. It sparks a thought, a memory, it connects to you personally for some reason. Okay, again, this is a reminder we're not looking this time through to interpret this passage theologically or get some kind of really intellectual nugget from it. We're really trying to see how is Jesus speaking to me personally through the words of this passage. Okay, so just pay attention to what stirs in your heart, what stands out to you. Write those things down or underline them and just begin to reflect. Why this? What is the Lord trying to say to me through this? So second and final time through Matthew 18, 21. <clears throat> then Peter approaching asked Jesus, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how often must I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus answered, I say to you, not seven times, but 77 times. That is why the kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who decided to settle accounts with his servants. When he began the accounting, a debtor was brought before him who owed him a huge amount. Since he had no way of paying it back, his master ordered him to be sold along with his wife, his children, and all his property in payment of the debt. At that, the servant fell down, did him homage, and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back in full. Moved with compassion, the master of that servant let him go and forgave him the loan. When that servant had left, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a much smaller amount. He seized him and started to choke him, demanding, pay back what you owe. Falling to his knees, his fellow servant begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he had him put in prison until he paid back the debt. Now when his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were deeply disturbed and went to their master and reported the whole affair. His master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you your entire debt because you begged me to. Should you not have had pity on your fellow servant as I had pity on you? Then in anger, his master handed him over to the torturers until he should pay back the whole debt. So will my heavenly father do to you unless each of you forgives his brother from his heart. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to reflect back over that passage for a moment, especially the things that resonated with you that stood out and any questions that this passage arose in you. And we're going to take about the next 10 minutes or so at your tables. Uh, feel free to discuss what questions you have, what stood out to you and why, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group for some further uh, explanation and to answer those questions. So go ahead and take about the next 10 minutes. So a few things about uh, this passage. You may have a different translation, so you may actually have this written in yours. Um, but the amounts of this debt, um, so in some translations, they'll actually tell you in the, in the actual original translation, it will tell you the great debt, the amount that was owed was 10,000 talents. Yes, yeah. And then the amount that the servant was owed by a lesser servant was what, 100 denarii, something like that? Yes, 100 denarii. So a denarii is a day's wage. 
Okay, one day's wage. So 100 denarii, the lesser debt that one servant owed to another was 100 days wages. Okay, so that's a pretty big debt, but not a huge amount, right? Uh, I don't know what that would be in, in today's currency. I mean, it'd be a lot, but not something unpayable, you know, something that might take some time. But the debt that was accrued by the servant to the king, uh, it was basically a combination for the purposes of the story of the highest number in the Greek language that there is a word for, like a word on its own, which is 10,000, and the highest denomination of currency at the time, which was a talent. And a talent was equated to 6,000 denarii. One talent, 6,000 denarii, 6,000 days wages. So this debt is about 60 million days wages, equivalent to 200,000 years worth of wages that this servant owed this king. So when this servant throws himself before the king and says, be patient with me, I will pay this back. I mean, this is desperation. This is a, a really like unfathomable amount of debt. There's no way he's going to pay this back. And the king's gesture to just like sell him and his wife and his property. I mean, he's not going to accrue anything near this debt that has been accrued. And who knows, you know, what kind of situation would have been involved for him to rack up this much debt in the first place. But the purposes of this story is to show, one, the unfathomable forgiveness that God has for us. So I don't know if you saw yourself in this parable or if you interpreted it as like who Jesus is in this parable. But for our purposes, Jesus is the king and you and I are the first servant. And the lesser servants are how we see everyone else in the, the things that are done to us and whether we are willing to forgive or not. That's a proper way to understand this parable because everything leading up to this, how are you supposed to organize your church? Like this is what Jesus is offering. Make sure that you receive the kingdom like a child. You don't cause scandal. Remember that no one is expendable. If someone does something to cause scandal, there's a, a way in which you can restore them. But all of that culminates in this final parable about when you restore them, there still needs to be forgiveness. There still needs to be forgiveness. You know, I can imagine a situation where, you know, maybe someone embezzles a bunch of money from a company and they get let go and then they beg for their job back and they get restored to that position. But everyone else at that job is going to be like, oh, this fool again? Like, no way. No way is this happening again. Like, they're not going to have the same attitude toward this person. And what radical forgiveness, at least the forgiveness that's being talked about in this passage, compels us to do is to then bring them back to that place where we can establish that trust again. Now, Jesus is not expecting that to be overnight. But he's saying these lingering attachments you may have to your own pride or your own hurt cannot get in the way of the forgiveness that this person is owed if they are truly repenting. Okay, and that's the, the caveat. If they are truly repenting, if someone is just coming in, taking advantage of all this forgiveness, then that's one thing. But if someone is truly sorry, truly repentant, then there is, the catechism says, there is absolutely no sin that the church cannot forgive. There is no sin that the church cannot forgive. The condition is if the person is truly repentant. And so that really is put on us. It's put on us because if you remember earlier in this gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, when the disciples asked Jesus, how is it we are to pray? He gives them the Our Father. And what are the lines in the Our Father toward the end? Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. A few verses later, but if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your transgressions. That's a pretty lofty statement. That's pretty challenging. That our forgiveness, whether or not we receive the forgiveness of God, is conditional upon whether or not we're willing to forgive others with the same mercy. Because you and I, brothers and sisters, the cross is a reminder that you and I owed the spiritual equivalent of 10,000 talents, a debt that we could never pay, that we could never pay because of our sin, because of the fact that we're fallen, because of original sin and all the sins that we commit. And when we throw ourselves before our Savior and say, please, Lord, forgive me, he does. But that doesn't mean we can then just go on living a reckless or a sinful life or hold others to their, their sin or the ways that they've hurt us and not extend that same forgiveness to them. And so when Peter initiates this conversation, he asks, how many times must I forgive? And he asks, seven times? And it seems like Jesus here says, oh, that's not enough, right? He, he ups the game. But what Peter is offering is actually very generous because the norm, we see this in kind of the way that the, the, 
book of the prophet Amos is laid out. There's this series in chapters 1 and 2 of the prophet Amos where he's talking about um, there's three crimes of Damascus and now four, three crimes of Gaza and now four. And it speaks to this reality at the time that you could forgive someone three times and that was kind of the expected generous amount. And if that did not work, then the fourth time, that's it. You're not compelled to do that again. And the same thing is true if we were asking forgiveness from someone. Rabbis at this time would teach that if you hurt someone and you went to them three times and they refused to forgive you, after the third time, that other person now is bound by their sin of unforgiveness. You have done your duty to ask for their forgiveness and to try and reconcile. And if that person is holding it against you, that's now on them. So that was three. Seven is incredibly generous. Like Peter's like, he's, he's, got, he's got the right idea. But what Jesus does is he turns this whole idea upside down and he says 77 times. Now this is not a math lesson. This is a grace lesson. That seven is a number that represented perfection. And so when you multiply two numbers in Hebrew kind of numerology, it just amplifies the quality. So in an infinitely perfect way is how we are called to forgive. 77 in this form in Greek doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. However, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it appears in one other place. And it's in Genesis chapter 4. Just after original sin has entered the world, Cain has killed his brother Abel. The first murder in the Bible has happened. And now there's this kind of blood that needs to be paid. And people within the generational family start to point their fingers at the family of Cain and the line of Cain and say, we need to get rid of this, these people. And so God speaks to them and says, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. What he's saying here is if you avenge Cain, you're going to be punished seven times over. And if you avenge one of his ancestors, Lamech was one of his ancestors, you'll be punished 77 times over. So this was an extremely negative kind of use of the number, showing the consequence of sin. And so Jesus recalls back to this moment right after everything went wrong in the Garden of Eden, original sin entered the world, and you see the destructive nature of sin, and he's using the same exact language to show how he wants to turn everything upside down and bring it right back into its proper order, to restore us to the way and the relationship that we were created to have with him and with others, the way that things were created to be in the beginning. And the level of forgiveness, the level of love that exists in the kingdom of God, and when we have glimmers of that here on earth, is this radical forgiveness of one another. And over and over in the Bible, it tells us that if we judge others, we will be judged. If we do not forgive others, then we will not be forgiven. It's conditional on whether or not we allow that to flow out of ourselves into the lives of other people. What are the things that Jesus preaches against the most? Three things. Hypocrisy, unforgiveness, and wealth that is hoarded to the disparity of serving the poor. And yet when most of us think about our Christian faith, we often don't jump to those three things, do we? We think about, okay, if I check the boxes, if I'm going to Mass, if I'm giving money, if I'm worshiping the right way, we get obsessed with little movements and little norms, and instead we ignore these other teachings of Jesus that he most prominently emphasizes in his ministry, more so, radically more so than any other. Does he talk about immorality? Yes. Does he talk about prayer and worship? Yes. But not to the degree that he talks about those three things, because those three things are what tears apart the central message of a kingdom-focused church. Turning everything upside down. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They are elevated. The rich are not. Serving them. Recognizing that preferential option for the poor. Recognizing that we, as Catholics, are walking symbols of Jesus Christ. We're meant to be his stewards, his emissaries, out into the world. And if we are causing scandal, like it says earlier in this chapter, or if we're holding on to unforgiveness... We are breeding division and bringing sin upon ourselves and upon the church. Because I said last week, as it says in 1 Corinthians, if one part of the body suffers, all the parts suffer. And so we, brothers and sisters, by virtue of our baptism and belonging to this church, have a radical responsibility to forgive. It's not easy. Doesn't mean that we forget. Doesn't mean that it's okay, the things that people have done to us. But it does mean that we have to be willing to let go of the burdens of that unforgiveness. And to use, I think, the language that the catechism uses, I can look it up, but it says something like, 
to turn that, that, um, that unforgiveness into a prayer of intercession. To be able to pray for the salvation of the other person. That's a hard thing to be able to do, especially people who have wounded us or hurt us in very physical or emotional, mental, spiritual ways, whatever it may be. But to see the world through God's point of view is to recognize he desires every single person to be in heaven. And none of us can get there alone. We pray for one another. We forgive one another. We encourage one another. We support one another, even our enemies. That's what it means to love them. Doesn't mean we have to like them. Doesn't mean they can be in the same relationship with us that they were before. But it means when we restore them to that God perspective image of being a person who is a child of God that's destined for heaven, we have to be willing to let go of the things that prevent us from seeing them that way. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. Doesn't mean it didn't hurt. But it doesn't mean we have to be willing to move that obstacle out of the way if it's preventing them from moving forward toward heaven. It's a tall order. That being said, what stands out to you in this passage? Does that resonate with you? Questions you have about that or thing, other things in this passage? Yeah, Joni. We were Yes, yeah. When the one person goes to jail, how is he going to make money? He puts him in an impossible situation, right? Yes, yeah, today, yeah, you might be able to make money in jail, but yeah, you know. Yes, yeah, <laughs> just like Monopoly, that's hilarious. Um, yeah, you're putting someone in an impossible situation. That's what we do when we refuse to forgive someone. We put them in an impossible situation. We lock them into a position where they are being forced to be viewed as someone who is always stuck in their sin. All you're ever going to be to me is the bad thing that you did. And God forbid if the Lord looked at us that way, right? I mean, look the mercy he has on us. He could very easily do that. In fact, he is most entitled of any being in salvation history in the universe to do that, to look at us and say, look at all that you lost. Look at the ways that you turn away. And yet he doesn't. And if he doesn't, we have no right to. Otherwise, we do exactly that. We lock people in a situation where they can, can never pay their debt. Yeah? Um, expanding on that, when... Jesus talks about how the, the original debtor goes to jail mm -hmm. um, till he pays his debt off, and we know that that debt is unpayable. Mm -hmm. When he gets put in that jail, is that Jesus' way of saying, if, you're, if you've been overgiving in the way you are, and unmerciful to others, um, then you're going to go. Oh. Yeah, essentially in the end, that's what happens. That's how we would interpret the passage is that it doesn't say the it doesn't use the exact same language that he goes to prison. Do you see he says his master handed him over to the torturers. That's even more severe. You know, the prison mentality is just like you're locked in this position of unforgiveness. But if we are adamant in holding on to unforgiveness and refusing to extend the mercy to others that we've been extended, then we don't really understand the forgiveness of God. We have not let it come over us in such a way that we've received it and can receive that gift of salvation. And so we've disqualified ourselves, essentially, from entering into the kingdom of heaven. We've allowed that to, to be a, an obstacle or a burden toward that gift of salvation that we should have by virtue of our baptism. We've lost it because we haven't maintained that state of grace by being willing to extend mercy to our brother or sister. Yeah, and that can result in us being in eternal separation with God. Yeah. Kind of going off of what you saying, my translation of the Bible, that last um, verse says, like, gives the jailers till shouldn't pay his debts. Mm -hmm. Kind of insinuating there's a there's a till, it's not like a he's just gone. Mm -hmm. I kind of was thinking more purgatory. Is that like sure. is that a can of worms to open? Would that translation be incorrect? So, or, no, I mean, that that is probably, you have the Great Adventure Bible. Yeah, it's probably a more accurate translation than this. This is more a formal equivalent translation or a dynamic equivalent translation. It's trying to get the meaning across, whereas that one is more like trying to get the accurate word. And so, yeah, you could then interpret it as uh, possibly talking about purgatory. However, you're kind of skirting that line where if, where if it says, Jesus says, if you don't forgive others, then I don't forgive you, then that would kind of imply purgatory is not even on the table. So, but you could interpret it that way because purgatory uses a lot of that debt 
and payment imagery, you know, that we've racked up this debt of temporal consequences from our sins. And even though the forgiveness of God washes over us and washes away the consequences of sin, the effects and attachments of our sin remain. That's why we need purgatories, to undo all those knots and attachments that we have towards sin. And so that has less to do with the debt and more of the consequences of the debt. So I would still be more inclined to interpret it as hell, but you could, I think, you know, there's a reasonable way you can interpret it as purgatory too. Yeah. Yeah, Gio. So you were saying if, if somebody comes to you three times or seven times and, and asks for forgiveness, we're only obligated. What do you do with people who are harming you and they don't they don't repent? They're not sorry for what they're doing. Like what how do I how do you handle those situations? Yeah, how do you handle those who are not sorry, who refuse to repent? So first I'll clarify that that idea of someone coming to you three times for forgiveness, that was what the rabbis taught as a normal thing. That's not like a, a Catholic church right. teaching. It's like this is more the Catholic view would be more of just like radical forgiveness. Um, but here, I'll, I'll pull out where it says it in the catechism. So let me see if I can find it. I have the section earmarked, but there was one particular passage. Yes, so in, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 982, where it says, there is no offense, however serious, that the church cannot forgive. There is no one, however wicked and guilty, who may not confidently hope for forgiveness, provided his repentance is honest. And so if repentance is not present, then forgiveness is not expected. And we just stay away. Yeah, yeah, we need to set proper boundaries. We need to keep ourselves safe. Like we have the teachings in the church about uh, you're, you're properly disposed to protect your life first and the dignity of your own human life. So things like self-defense are appropriate and things like that. Um, if you're being physically attacked, obviously. Um, but the gates of forgiveness are open and available to anyone who honestly repents. And so if someone is honestly repenting, I mean, that we do have to do that discernment. We have to keep ourselves safe and not just kind of fall into the trap of someone just saying they're repenting or saying that they're sorry when they're not. You know, there is a big, a very vast, messy gray area to this whole situation that I'm fully acknowledging. It's not just like, just forgive and everything will be okay. Like, no, some people are manipulative or sociopathic and, you know, you just, you can't be expected to just blanketly forgive. But that is the, that's the ideal. That's the goal. And of everything that Jesus offers us, there's this kind of gold standard. Not one of us can meet that this side of heaven, but it's about striving toward that but recognizing the repentance must be honest. However, even if it's not, like let's say, like if this person is actively still harming you, yes, get out of that situation, set the boundary, remove, remove them from your life. But even if they're not sorry, um, you know, they're obviously not holding on to this. They don't care. But if you're holding on to it, give yourself the freedom to let go because you're the only person still being adversely affected by what had happened to you, you know? So there is that aspect as well, that like forgiveness can be a healing thing, even if the person doesn't repent, because otherwise you're holding on to it and you're making it worse for yourself. Yeah, uh, Margo, I saw your hand first, yeah. The whole discussion about repentance. Yes. I mean, you can be sorry and go to confession or done something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do strong, I'm patient, whatever. Yeah. Then, yeah, I really want to change, but then back again, oh yeah, I'm still impatient. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you don't, you're not sincere about wanting to try mm -hmm. better, but it doesn't, I mean, repentance doesn't just stop, yes or no. I mean, it's a journey kind of. Yeah, so yeah, there, it, repentance is a journey, um, and the difference between, you know, just being sorry but falling back into the sin. I would say like repentance, the word repent means a turn and it signifies a 180 degree turn in the other direction. It doesn't imply that you'll never turn back, but it does imply not just like, okay, this thing is bad and I'm going to stop doing it. So I'm just kind of turning like a 45 degree angle away from it. No, it's like, this is behind me and I'm going in this direction now. So like, we've talked about this before, but if you go to confession, you pray the act of contrition. And at the end of the act of contrition, you say that um, I firmly resolve to avoid the near occasion of sin or the people, places, and things that lead me to sin. You usually say something like that. And so if you already have in your mind like a habitual disposition for this sin or an attachment to it, or you know full well you're going to do it again and you have a plan to do it, then you cannot honestly pray that act of contrition. And even if you say it out loud, your confession is considered invalid. Because the first step in any confession is repentance. It's not when you show up here. It's not when you show up here. The first step in a valid confession is contrition, being sorry for your sins and turning away from them. Then we go to the act of confession to be reconciled, 
we are absolved and we do penance. Those are the four steps in the catechism of the sacrament of confession. And most of the time we focus just on the form of the confession itself, the words of absolution, we think that's it. It's like, no, there's a lot of times people might walk into the confessional knowing full well they're going to go commit this sin again or they already have a plan to do it. And if we don't firmly resolve, saying to the best of my ability and my intention at this moment, I am vowing to never do this again. Doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. Doesn't mean that we won't fall back into that sin. But we have to be in that place in our heart to say, like, I am resolving to put this behind me and fully turn away. So there is a difference between just like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, like, you know. So not implying that that was what you're saying, but there is kind of, there's a, there's a spectrum. And so, yes, we may fall back into that sin. It is a journey. Repentance is a journey. It's not just a one and done. But sometimes we're not scrutinous, scrutinous enough with ourselves when we think about going to confession or repenting of our sin. We might be a little too easy on ourselves and not firmly resolving to do that. So, for instance, like when you, if you commit like a serious sin, a mortal sin, you have to go to confession to get that forgiven. However, there is this practice where you can say what's called a perfect act of contrition before you get to your next confession, and that kind of, you know, covers you. You've basically said in a perfect way, I am sorry. And some people do that. They pray the act of contrition when they've sinned and they think they're good. Well, it says in the catechism, there's such thing as an imperfect act of contrition and a perfect act of contrition. And an imperfect act of contrition is I'm saying this prayer just because I'm afraid of the punishment and I don't want to go to hell. And that's usually why people do that. Perfect contrition is heartfelt sorrow at the loss of the friendship with God. And that is a higher level, a desire to turn away from what I've done because I desire union and friendship with God, and I don't want to lose that. It's not a fear out of the punishment and the consequences. It's a recognition that I have harmed that relationship and that I want to take advantage of that forgiveness that's offered to me, and I recognize the ramifications of my actions. So, yes, Rick. I was always taught that forgiveness had three requirements. Okay. Sorrow. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. You say restitution mm -hmm. and firm purpose of amendment. Now, am I confusing that with repentance, or are those still the same? No, repentance would be, I think, um, the first. You know, being sorry. Um, so, if you didn't hear that, three components of forgiveness, which I like these a lot: uh, sorrow, restitution, and a firm resolve of amendment. Is that what you said? Yes, a firm purpose of amendment. So, meaning to make amends. So, which. I'm not sure how, how you would distinguish between restitution and that. Maybe a resolve to not do it again, whereas restitution, you're making up. Yes, but isn't that restitution? Okay, gotcha. So, yes, so that is all, it all encompasses, you know, the full act of repentance, but the act of repentance itself is the sorrow. Then we go to be reconciled to confession, that's the restitution, and then the firm purpose of amendment is penance where we're making up for the consequences of our sin. So that's in the act of con confession. And going to another person, yes, we cannot just go to another person and say, oh, I'm really sorry that that happened, or that, that I did that. You know, we have to be able to show we are truly sorry. Otherwise, it just becomes empty words. Because we're fallen people, we're going to sin again, we might hurt this person again. And then what is sorry going to mean? You know, it, it could become even a course of uh, recourse to manipulation for this person. So I, I like that. What did you say restitution is sorrow's reconciliation? Sorrow is. Sorry, what? Sorry is. Oh, so if I'm comparing it to confession? Okay, so sorrow would be uh, contrition or repentance, like the act of being sorry. Restitution would be the act of going to confession and receiving absolution. And then the firm purpose of amendment would be penance. Or what the, in the catechism is called satisfaction, I think. Yeah. Yeah, come. How do we handle. Um... Of course, not being able to forgive others separates us from our relationship with God, but how does not being able to forgive ourselves do that? Hmm. Yeah, not being able to forgive ourselves. I think if we can't forgive ourselves, then how can we possibly fathom that God can forgive us? You know, it puts an impediment or an obstacle in the way of us seeing the magnitude of the salvation and the mercy that God has for us. So I don't think there's nothing that says, like, if you don't forgive yourself, your God won't forgive you. Like, there's nothing to that degree like there is in Matthew 6 when it's our, our uh, need to forgive others. But it can, I think, be a serious impediment for us being able to fully receive and understand what Jesus has done for us. So, yeah, that's a great point. We have to be willing to forgive ourselves. Emily, I'll come over here, I promise. <laughs> How do you know that you have completely forgiven a person? Like, 
those who should stay about. Because I think of forgiveness as like multifaceted in many different categories, different types of love, yeah. different stages of grief. What are what is what are the different stages of like forgiveness and how do we know that we've completed all of these things? Yeah, so I so how do we know if we've truly forgiven someone is the question. And so like I think the act of forgiveness in the three steps that, that Rick pointed out, but this is more the emotional consequence of forgiveness. Like how do we know we've detached from, from this? Is that am I interpreting you right? Um, and I mean I'm not an expert in this or you know a psychologist. I you know, and I hold grudges. So um, you know, I'm I'm preaching to the choir as well. But I would think like my first sense when you ask that question is when I first think of or look at this person, is my immediate desire for them heaven? Or is my immediate impulse to go back to this thing that they did and identify them with that? And I think if I can get to a place where that's not the first thing I think of when that person's name comes up or I see them, then I'm getting to a place where I've, I've let go. You know, we're imperfect. You know, we're, I don't think we'll, we can't possibly forget, you know, it's especially traumatic things where people have hurt us. They're embedded into our subconscious. Like we can't forget them. They affect us, our patterns of behavior, like psychology proves that time and time again. But I think we can get to a place where we can no longer associate them with a negative thing and see them for the whole complicated, messy person that they are and recognize that we're also a whole complicated, messy person and be able to hope that others would see us that we've hurt. Uh, others who we've hurt would see us and desire us to get to heaven and have that same compulsion for others. Does that make sense? Yeah. Catherine. Um, Ethan, one kind of clarification. Yes. I talked to a priest about confession at one point, but I think you're maybe just talking about the prayer after contrition itself, but mm -hmm. he told me that uh, just at minimum, of course you want more, but for a confession to be valid, that you just need attrition, so fear going to help basically minimally to have a Minimally, yeah. But that involves what attrition does is it provokes you to contrition. Yeah. You're sorry for your sins because you're afraid of going to hell. However, it doesn't constitute what the catechism would say a perfect act of contrition, which is something that you do outside of confession. Yeah. yeah. So that's the distinction. They would call that an imperfect act of contrition. However, when you're in confession, all you need is the act of contrition, like just as the form for a proper confession to be valid. You know, you do have to express sorrow for your sins. Um, so in terms of the disposition of one's heart, yes, yeah, at, the, at a minimum, there is that fear of the consequence of sin. Yeah, but it doesn't constitute a perfect act of contrition. And then my question, um, your example kind of stuck with me about that person getting in trouble at work, but then they get the drawback and like the coworkers being expected to treat them the same if that's like true forgiveness mm -hmm. and so i'm wondering if you could touch on you did a little bit but how forgiveness looks like I, i've had family members talk to priests about certain hard forgiveness issues mm -hmm. in family and they said you don't need to have a relationship with that person but you need to forgive them and so i'm kind of confused on what that looks like just on a yeah in general sense because when i think of forgiving someone you want to have like some kind of positive feeling a relationship towards them. Yeah. It's been broken, but we're called to write, like you said in that example, treat them as if they hadn't done that before. Uh, yeah, I mean, that would be the ideal. Like, that's how Jesus looks at us. But is that possible for us, you know, to be able to look at another person and act as though they had never done that before? Because that would, that would in a sense, be an, an, um, an assault on our own dignity. Saying, like, okay, what happened to me didn't really matter. You know, so it's kind of, we have to hold those two things in tension with one another. And, um, and that's a hard thing to do. So like, I like the example that Father Mike Schmitz uses is that, you know, you loan someone your car uh, and, you know, it's precious to you and they go crash it. Um, you know, you, you can forgive them. You can say this was an accident, but you're not going to loan them your brand new car when you get a new one. You know, you're going to be a little hesitant to that. They have to be able to show that there's some kind of responsibility that they're taking. So, you know, I don't, I don't know what that might look like in steps. I think I have written here in my Bible, you know, if you have the Bishop Barron uh, Bible, he has commentary in there. And he talks about, uh, I think, four steps to forgiveness or how to be better at forgiving. And, and one, he says, is to, to do a daily examine, examine our conscience every day to recognize our own sinfulness. And secondly, he says to go to confession regularly. So he starts with us because a lot of times our willingness to hold on to the sin of someone else also illuminates the fact that there's some kind of pride or selfishness or a desire to be, I don't know, known or, or I don't know, celebrated to a degree beyond what we're really um, meant. But then he says the other two steps are to forgive quickly 
And then to, um, what, are the, what are the words he uses? To do so in a concrete way. So by making some kind of act of, you know, writing a letter, you know, like a formal moment, like actually like, I don't know, documenting it in some way. Um, that way you're actually like concretely putting this forgiveness into something that's tangible. And that can make it more real. You know, more, you, you've signified to the other person that they're restored in your eyes. You've actually gone through the physical act of expressing that to them. That simple act of just communicating it to them in a tangible way can actually make a difference. But are we ever going to meet that, like, that gold standard that God has for us? Like, you know, like you're completely forgiven. And, and actually, and I don't know if I said this, but it, the, the things that I'm, I'm saying might have been interpreted this way. Um, but if I did say it, then I misspoke. I don't think that we're called to forget what people have done for us because Jesus doesn't forget. Right? If he forgot it, there'd be no purgatory, Right? There'd be no like consequences to the temporal effects of our sins. Like he recognizes there is a consequence to your sin and I'm going to forgive you of it completely. I'm not going to hold you accountable to it, but there is a debt that still needs to be paid, you know? And so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's that balance between those two tensions and each situation is going to be different. Like has this person really demonstrated honest repentance? Have they gone through some type of program? You know, have they demonstrated a total 180 degree turn? There might be a little more compassion or extension toward them. Also, what degree of the relationship do you have with them? If this is just like someone that you knew versus like your brother, you know, like there's differences into the degree of forgiveness that might be possible or expected. You know, so that you have to navigate each relationship differently. So, yeah, but we do have to protect ourselves, set good boundaries. The forgiveness in our heart doesn't have to mean no holds barred, no boundaries and practical reality, you know. So great question. Yeah, John. Uh, you said this kind of keeps hearing it. I'm not sure you clarify this point. Yes. It sounded like earlier you said that your obligation to forgive somebody is somehow contingent on them being sorry. I completely disagree. No, no, no. Actually, Andy Catholic, completely. No. So, like, there's no contingency that this person who wronged me is sorrowful because yeah. the honor is on me to forgive them. Yes. So, what, yeah, so the, I think that was, can you, you just mentioned it again about them being sor sorry or showing repentance, and I, I don't think that that's a like, uh, necessary thing for me to forgive. Sure, yeah. It's, it's a burden on me, actually. Yeah. Okay. So with that being said, so um, what I've yeah, forgiveness to me has always been taught like it's an intellectual assent that you basically because um, like you know the seven covenants here that it's an it's an assent that I am not going to hold you responsible for the like the curses that you basically could have invoked on yourself for for like covenantal curses. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So, like, there's you separate or categorize into this intellectual thing, which that's what you're obligated to do. And then what you feel and what you go through as a human, you know, we're humans, it's going to take us time. So, yeah. there's this time aspect that that might take years yeah. or a lifetime. It might not even happen until purgatory. Yeah. And so, that, that the real duty is this you, like, I think you said something, the first thing you don't want to look at is like hate them or be yeah. disgusted. But you need to make that a formal thing, and you say, God, don't forgive yeah, yeah. So speaking to the clarification between, we're talking about kind of two different aspects, forgiveness and restoration, you know, and so I think rest, restoring someone into a place in our own life is different than the act of forgiving them. The language I was talking about that's conditional was the language in the catechism about the church being able to forgive any sin as long as the person has honest repentance. But for us individually, we don't need to require, Jesus doesn't require that of us like to, well, in order for salvation to take effect, 
that's required. But the fact that he forgives us is just a blanket. Like he forgives us all. It's whether or not we respond, you know, whether or not we're actually repentant that we can receive it. But yeah, it's not contingent upon how we're going to be judged. You know, it's like you had to, you have to forgive everyone who was sorry uh, in this same way, or you don't have to forgive people who aren't sorry. No, like we're called to forgive infinitely perfect, seven times seven, you know, to that degree. But to restore them into a relationship where they could hurt us again with no sign of repentance or restitution? No. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for asking for that clarification because we are talking about kind of two different components of this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Most of the time. And it even says in the catechism, like a real perfect act of contrition would be incredibly rare. It says some, something like that in that passage. Um, because most of the time when we, when we're in that situation where we've committed a mortal sin and we, we can't get to confession yet, but we're worried about like, uh Oh, like what's going to happen if something happens to me before confession, that worry comes from a place of the fear of death and the fear of the loss of heaven and the consequences of our sin that would constitute an imperfect act of contrition. So, but really out of a desire of loss of perfect friendship with God, like that just because of our fallen nature, it would probably be incredibly rare. Yeah. Church, um, I guess, kind of comparing Catholicism to any other Protestant or non-denominational, right? The view of Catholicism has been skewed and like law-based, and like everything is negative, so we always fear things before mm, yeah. relationships. Yeah, so the the idea that Catholicism can have the perception of being law-based and fear-based, I think that comes from a misuse of the law of the church, like how it has been imposed historically, but also a misunderstanding of the law of the church. And to summarize it briefly, um, in terms of Catholicism, rules are not made to be broken. The rules are there to prevent us from being broken. And when you see the law as something that sets you free versus something that oppresses you, everything falls into its proper place. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Um, on the topic of... Um the intellectual separation of forgiveness and the emotional separation. Mm -hmm. um, what a perfect, the perfect act of forgiveness for a person would, is an act of love, correct? I mean, not love in a Christian sense, but just willing to go to the other. Mm -hmm. We talked about it, how we're going back. When we truly have forgiven somebody, we have that feeling again of, I'm willing to go to you. Um, Sorry. Um, are, we're called to for, forgive them in our hearts, not mm -hmm. not necessarily say that. I hope God doesn't judge you for this, right? Well, I, yeah. We, I mean, the goal is to hope that they won't be judged for it. You know, at least that you know, because we want them to be in heaven. That's the that's the goal of radical forgiveness. So. How do I put this? Um, a perfect act of, of forgiveness would be demonstrating forgiveness to the degree that Jesus did on the cross. Being willing to suffer as a result of forgiving this person, laying down our life even for this person. Now, is that something we're called to do or that we like should all do anytime someone hurts us? Practically, that's probably not going to happen, right? But the emotional part of that, like, am I willing to let go? which as John pointed out, like the burden is on me. I'm taking on additional suffering to do this. In a small way, we are emulating what Jesus did on the cross. And so the goal is, yeah, we don't want this person to be prevented from the glory of heaven because of what they did to us. And we hope that we're not prevented of the glory of heaven because of what we've done to others, especially the things that have gone unnoticed, things that we've done that have hurt other people that we're maybe not even aware of. And so as we kind of close our time, I, I would encourage you to think about this week your role in this parable, do you recognize the level of forgiveness that you've been given? 10,000 spiritual talents worth, an unpayable debt. In the words of Scott Hahn, he paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. And nothing that you do, nothing that you, there's no way to earn it. There's no way to become worthy of it. There's no way to lose it or gain it, the love and the forgiveness of God. It's whether or not we receive it and respond to it. That's it. And so 
We can turn to scrupulosity and feel like, okay, I got to check all these boxes and do everything to make sure I'm right with the Lord. Or we can run far away and say, okay, I guess whatever I do doesn't matter because God's going to forgive me, right? No, there's this dance in the middle in that tension where we recognize how radically we've been forgiven. And then we go out and extend that forgiveness to others because that may be the first glimmer they see of Jesus in the way that we love them and the way that we're willing to lay down our life to suffer in order to take on that burden of forgiving someone, even if they don't, they don't show that they're sorry or even if they don't deserve it. To will heaven for everyone. We're going to be entering into an election year. And so this is a good thing to keep in mind. So every person that you get mad at, every pundit, every candidate, every person you have an argument with, I want you to imagine that God looks at them and says, one day, I hope that there will be a church named Saint So-and-So with that person's name on it. That's his goal, is to make that person a saint. And we have to have that same disposition. Can we pray for that person, forgive them and love them in a way that we're pushing them or nudging them a little bit more in that direction? So if you think this parable is a tall order, that might be even taller. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this passage, the way it challenges us. Thank you most of all for the ways that you forgive us. We commit so many sins on a daily basis that we don't even probably realize. The ways that we're ungrateful, selfish, self-focused, vain, proud. The ways that we neglect the needs of others, the needs of the poor. The ways that we hoard our gifts and our talents for our own benefit and do not give them back to the church to bless others. There are a myriad of ways that we forget you, Lord, or turn away. And so help us not to look at ourselves with judgment or shame because of that, but to be compelled to recognize the great gift of forgiveness you extend to us that is undeserved. And to simply respond with a heartfelt thank you that overflows out of us into the lives of others so that they will experience that same forgiveness and love and mercy from us. Because if we don't, we create obstacles for our own salvation and potentially for theirs. Help us, Lord, to live in such a way that we hope heaven for every single soul. And that if we find someone who's on a path that is not leading toward heaven, we do all that we can to forgive, love, and nudge them in the right direction. Help us to hold one another accountable, to build one another up in love, and to forgive one another of the things that we've done to offend each other. Because we are a family, a body of Christ, and if one part of the body suffers... All the parts suffer because of it. Make us holy. Help us to do this, Lord, because we cannot do it without your grace. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So great.